How can we increase the chances that our audience will truly get what we mean? With clarity. I'm Daphna. Welcome to Let's Clarify It, where we'll explore how to communicate our innovative ideas in ways that lead to the results and impact we set out to achieve. Every day we encounter so many opportunities for meaningful exchanges. Let's make the most of them by being perfectly clear. Have you ever heard of operations research? Neither had I, until meeting the wonderful Professor Nicole Adler, Dean of Hebrew University Business School here in Jerusalem. Operations research and optimization are at the heart of diverse innovation, from medical instrumentation to navigation technologies. As Nicole beautifully clarified it herself, it's the math of the science of better. And throughout her exciting career, she researches, teaches, and applies it, especially in the global transportation industry. In our conversation, which made me want to become one of Nicole's students, despite being the very poster girl for finished school terrified of math, as Nicole points out, is the unnecessary but all-too-common case for so many, Nicole demonstrates how operations research can help individual businesses, the market at large, the private and public sectors benefit society, companies, employees, and consumers. From optimizing the price of externalities in aviation, to consulting to 52 Norwegian airports, to writing a thesis on British airways, there's a wealth of knowledge to be learned from this accomplished researcher who is herself terrified of getting on planes. Join us for episode 24 of Let's Clarify It, in which Nicole shares how you can consult effectively to managers, even when it's not fun for them to be benchmarked, why she's just obsessed with infrastructure, and what she foresees will unfold in light of the automated vehicle revolution. Curious? Let's clarify it. Good morning, Nicole. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Daphna? I'm good and I'm so happy to see you and I hope we can meet in person soon. I don't even know what to think. Are we going back to Zoom? Are we going to be allowed to keep meeting? What's it looking like for the next academic year? Scary. Ouch. I hope that we can open campus. It's very important to students, um, but it's not clear right now. What's your main conclusion after a year and a half of teaching predominantly remotely about in a field like yours in which you don't necessarily, it's not like exact sciences where everybody needs to be in a lab, right? What was possible to do effectively remotely this year? Interesting question. We taught everything online. We taught using Zoom, we taught synchronously. This is not necessarily exactly in line with all of the uh, results from, that come from the Faculty of Education where they suggest things like uh, millennial students don't concentrate for more than 10, 15 minute chunks. We expect a whole lot more from our students. And it would appear that the vast majority of them have been able to do that. Some of them even see an advantage in not having to get onto some public transport and arrive at the campus. I think that we lose a lot of the human interaction, the program called Zoom is not a substitute for sitting in a classroom, reading the person's eyes. You don't know through Zoom whether they're looking at you or not. It's 
but it's strange. But it's also allowed us to save the last year and a half of studies, let's be honest. And so for that, we should be very grateful. Indeed, indeed. So <laughs> your formal definition of, of your title is really easy, right? Dean of the Business School of Hebrew University. Really cool title, by the way. But your specific area of research is probably something that's less intuitive for the general public or even for researchers or entrepreneurs or students to be familiar with. Operations research, is it, within business? Indeed. And um, I've been studying this for the past 30 years and my mother still doesn't know what I do. So, <laughs> yes, operations research started in the Second World War, actually, started in the military. And it was a way of trying to understand uh, how to protect convoys, for example, and the ships. We've since dropped the world military and we began with operational research. And it's the mathematics of the science of better. It's gone through a lot of stages. It's been called uh, management science. And sometimes it's called operations research and management science. Today, the hot topic is analytics. So we go through stages and no one really knows what to call this subject. I would say I'm an OR guy. That's how I was brought up. It is the use of mathematics to understand the world. Because, of course, I'm sitting in a business school. That means it's the use of mathematics to understand businesses, to understand the markets, to help the private sector and the public sector improve for the benefit of society, the companies themselves, their employees, for the benefit of the consumers. It's very useful. Unfortunately, many people leave school with an absolute fear of mathematics. <laughs> I'm not sure who to blame for that. I can say it's just another language. So if you like to learn Japanese, then mathematics is just another language, whether Asian, European or American. We shouldn't be afraid of it. It's just got its own set of rules. When I started as a student, I was studying accounting and economics. And one of the courses in the third year I took was operations research. And it was like a light bulb moment where I got to see how optimization can help us to study a market and improve it. Today, we don't even think about it. Every time we open ways, we're actually looking for the shortest path, whether in kilometers or in time or whatever. Any machine that's being used in medicine today has a lot of optimization lying behind it to try and clear the picture so that it's easier to read. So optimization, in fact, simulation too, are the basic tools lying behind operations research. And that's what we want to teach and apply to the real world. And all you have to do is not be afraid of mathematics. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My name is Daphna and I'm afraid of math. We love you, Daphna. Where were you when I needed you in mid-elementary school when I loved languages? I studied French and Arabic during high school in parallel to everything else. But at that point, I was already hopeless in math. I'm not even sure why. Have you always loved math? Oh, but I'm probably not a good example. Okay, so I'm a bit of a geek. I loved everything. I loved learning French as well as math and history <laughs> and physics. So not a good example, maybe. I just think that uh, for some reason, it's a subject that creates either a fear or a love and sort of there's nothing left in between. What I can say to people is that it's incredibly useful. 
and I use it on a daily basis and it can create insights that are very hard to see otherwise. You can be sitting in a political situation and if you have a tool that looks at the world objectively, you can somehow improve maybe the situation for everybody by using this objective analysis and still handling the politics of the story. I could give you a couple of examples. Israel and the Department of Transport were considering signing an open skies agreement with the European Union in a way similar to Morocco and to Jordan. And there are many opposing sides to this story. There are the producers who would like or would prefer not to have such an agreement because it's going to impact them in many different ways. One of these sets of players that governments and, and regulators find harder to take into account are the consumers. And in this case, that would be the tourists and the Israelis that want to go abroad and see the world. And that would also be all of the companies that are using, using aviation to get their product to their final market and particularly the high-tech sector. So the Open Skies Agreement is going to impact different people different ways. And the question is, should we do it? Is it in the interests of Israeli society? And I was very fortunate to be asked by the head of the Civil Aviation Authority at the time, an amazing person, Rom, to have a look at that impact. And I was able to apply what are known as tools of OR in the form of applied game theory and show how opening the skies would impact the airlines, both the foreign airlines and the Israeli airlines, would impact the airport systems that we have, would impact the employees in Israel that would have perhaps more access to the outside world and for tourists in going and outbound. And we were able to show that opening the skies was worthwhile from these perspectives and where there would be dangers. In the end, the government did sign the agreement. People went on strike immediately. That wasn't fun. It's very hard to handle the impacts, the politics of it all. But I can honestly say that this agreement was introduced over five years. So by 2018, it was fully implemented. And in 2019, we were asked to look at what happened. And we were able to show that the predictions of the modeling approach, the applied games, were really very, very close to the actual outcome. It was so exciting. We had an open day to discuss all of this. The impact has been extremely positive. And it's heartwarming to see that the modeling approaches of OR were able to contribute, even if it was only epsilon, to the discussion about whether something was worthwhile to do or not. Wow. It's not coincidental that you used a transportation example because that's totally your thing, right? How did you even get into the field of transportation? Personally, I'm terrified of getting on planes. No way! <laughs> yes, but uh, um, I did a master's degree at the London School of Economics and my thesis there was done for British Airways, believe it or not, and looking at their decision processes. When I came to Israel, one of the professors had a question that he was looking to answer for the Dutch government, in fact. They were debating whether to allow Air France to buy KLM. Believe it or not, KLM doesn't actually exist. It's just a brand. And they were trying to understand 
how this could impact Dutch society and the Dutch airport system, Schiphol, which you may have heard of, and KLM. And that's where I guess I started with my applied OR modeling approaches to try and understand its impact. And that was pretty good too. To be honest, all of this research has been based on somebody called Nash that maybe you've heard of. I have. Okay, and uh, they even made a movie out of his life, I believe, A Beautiful Mind or something. I can honestly say that his name is in the title of my PhD, and he has impacted so much research all over the world because what he came up with really does help us explain the behavior of companies everywhere. And that was my first attempt to use this kind of research to understand the world. And so somehow it continued on. I actually have two fields, personally. One is in applied gate theory, as we discussed, and the other one is in productivity estimation or measurement. Productivity, of course, is an underlying important theorem in all of business. And what you can't measure, you, you cannot manage. And operations research has contributed a lot to developing the models of productivity measurement. One day, I was invited to join a group that was to look at the efficiency of the Norwegian airport system. The Norwegians had gone through a process um, at the beginning of the 2000s and had created a single company that was to run all 52 airports in Norway. It's a very interesting country. It's very narrow and very, very long. And the top part of it is extremely cold and without sun from around uh, October to March. And so access to aviation is incredibly important. And even though they only have a population of 5 million, they do have 52 airports. And they'd arranged it as a single company, which was 100% owned by the government, uh, similar to the Israeli system. By 2009, the costs had massively increased. And so the comptroller had gone to the government and asked whether this system was a good idea in the first place and whether it should be split up. And the Department of Transport decided that they wanted to know the answer. So they took on a bunch of academics to do some benchmarking and to measure the productivity of the system as compared to what we actually did was compare it to a bunch of airports across Europe in similar conditions. We had a lot of fun, and we also met a lot of politics, even in a country like Norway. So at the very beginning, I flew to Germany. We picked up a bunch of academics there. We flew to Oslo, picked up a few academics there. We all jumped up the next day for this meeting with the head of the CEO of the company, and he didn't turn up at all. The CEO himself? He did not turn up. <laughs> he was very angry. He did not want to participate in this process. And to be fair, it's not much fun being benchmarked. <laughs> and it's a scary process. But we did manage to start and we did keep going. And I can honestly say the most fun part of this was the very last meeting. where not only did the CEO turn up, but all five of the very top level of his company. And we ended up talking to them for between five and six hours about our findings. And we, we were able to discuss what we'd seen in the data and what we've seen in the results of our models. And they were able to explain why. Why we'd seen this, how they could change some of their processes 
to perhaps improve, become more productive, learn from each other. So, yes, it's just math. And yes, there's a whole lot of politics out there. If you do it carefully, and hopefully with the partners around you, you can actually go a long way and improve for the benefit of many stakeholders from when there were a lot of trade-offs. Wow, that was an amazing example. I don't often come across examples in which academia and industry can actually communicate with one another with great clarity. Did you feel like those industrialists totally understood your findings? How did you make them accessible to them? That is a very important part of, I guess, what is called consulting. And business schools around the world may be slightly different to some of the other departments in academia. And they do encourage the academics to do some consulting, not extreme, not to take away from their job, but actually to enhance it because it brings war stories to the class. It changes the way we teach. It changes some of our research. And it's a cycle. So research is impacted by the real world questions. We're able to answer and it helps us to learn how to pass on a message. So, for example, I worked for the European Union benchmarking their air traffic control system, which is not simple. Did it in a team of three with Peter Bogitoft, who is a professor from Copenhagen Business School. And with Nicola Volta, who now works for EY and was at Cranfields University. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of data. We ran a lot of models. And we came up with an answer. And then we went into a room in Brussels. It's really, really long. It had three rows on both sides facing each other. We walked into a room of 250 people. And we needed to convince them that they should cut their costs in the region of 3 billion euros annually. Now, that's quite a message to pass on to a lot of people who do not want to hear that. And we did not succeed completely. But if the price capping of this story had been extremely weak up until then, we were able to double the savings that the regulator was able to demand from these manufacturers is still a long way from achieving what we believe is the potential for this market. But on the other hand, I actually found myself explaining mathematical models. Graphs help a little bit, pictures worth a thousand words, and perhaps the way you explain what you're doing. I think I still have a lot to learn. We all have a lot to learn from you. Is your fascination mainly with the math, mainly with the real world problems, or with the connection between the two or something else entirely? I think that the most joy I get is teaching graduate students the basic tools of the math and their beauty to do research. But I also had a lot of fun along the way applying it and perhaps in my own little way trying to help society, whether it's within Israel or I've had the joy of working with people in Europe, in the US, and in the Far East too. It's the beauty of math, I guess, that it's very general and can be applied to many, many cases. Applying is not simple. Applying is an art and a science in its own right, and definitely something that you need to find a way to teach. Fantastic. What is it about infrastructure? You're clearly obsessed with all things infrastructure. What do you like about it so much? 
Infrastructure is, first and foremost, is the most expensive element of a government's spending all over the globe. And therefore, I find it of interest if I can help improve its utilization. I believe that the next revolution in society after the internet is going to be automated vehicles. We can easily expect robo-vehicles very soon everywhere. The technology is very expensive, so it will have to start in places where the vehicle is being used 24-7. So we're talking about maybe lorries, taxis and buses. What I also hope is that the regulators will be smart enough to create fleets or give out certification to companies with fleets of vehicles and individual households will stop buying private cars. They're very nice. They're very shiny. They're not used more than 5% of the time. They're very expensive. They're the second most expensive item for a household after a home. And therefore, if we can reduce that, that would be great. At the same time, what we want to do is improve people's access to their workplace for purposes of equality, efficiency. We want to allow the elderly to continue to have access, even though they're not driving, which is a good thing. It will reduce the number of accidents on the roads. And it will also provide greater access to the younger population. But if we have a lot more cars on the road, what we're going to do is sit in gridlock. We're never going to move. So this market must be properly managed. So right now I'm working with a group of students. We're trying to figure out exactly how to manage that system so that it does provide all of the positive benefits that we know it can, such that we also minimize the negative externalities pollution, congestion, noise, accidents, and so on. And this is the beauty of the kinds of modeling approaches that you find in operations research slash management science slash analytics that will allow us to understand those impacts and figure out what are the best ways of handling them. It's a bunch of trade-offs between a lot of stakeholders. The Israeli government, for example, earns a lot of money from the taxes on the fuel that we fill our cars, but we want to go electric. How can we ensure that we move in the right direction, even if it's not in the interests of the government? We can answer those questions, and that's why it's very important to train the next generation to make sure that these modeling approaches continue into the future and we adapt our societies in as positive a way as possible. Super. I'm interested in infrastructure because aside from its cost, it also impacts the way we live and specifically impacts the environment, which, as we all know, has to be managed properly sooner rather than later. I was very fortunate to recently win a couple of scientific awards, one that has allowed a Dutch student to come to Israel and do a postdoc with me and one from the Israel Science Foundation that will allow me to fund a PhD student at Hebrew University. And we're going to work as a team to try and figure out how to optimize the pricing of externalities in aviation. We can talk about the local area pollutants that are produced at airports around the globe. There's the simple one that we all know about and see people demonstrating over, which is noise. We see less the stories of my child has asthma and can't breathe because I live relatively close to an airport which is producing NOx, SOx 
and particulate matters in particular. We can also talk about, of course, greenhouse gas emissions and the story of contrails, which for a long time was considered not relevant to pollution because it's water. The contrails, the, the signs that we see in the sky where a plane has been, those white puffy things, okay, those are called contrails. They are water vapor, but apparently not only water vapor, they also have other stuff in them. And they are not good for the ozone and possibly even worse than the CO2 that the aircraft are currently producing. And then we can add the story that cars are going to be electrified. And I assume that by 2025, at the most 2030, we will no longer see gas-powered cars, vehicles. This is going to be a bigger problem for aviation. And so what we want to do is manage it. We want to encourage the aircraft manufacturers and engine manufacturers to try to minimize, for example, the production of CO2. And that's been happening for a long time now because fuel is so expensive that the airlines want to reduce the amount of fuel being consumed. And that also, at the same time, minimizes CO2. Fantastic. Only what they did was they produced an engine, it's called a turbofan, massive engine, reduces CO2, quadruples NOx. But if NOx is not being priced, and fuel is, and that's a function of CO2, then cool, that's what we get. Which is why it's so important to manage the system and to price all of the pollutants according to the levels to encourage our producers to try to minimize the pollutants. Why is it fascinating to me personally? Because I can use these models to provide a framework, first of all, that I can publish in the academic literature, which consultants can then apply all over the globe to figure out what that pricing should be. Super. So it's a way of impacting and ensuring that we are improving society. Nice. Now, Nicole, you address a ton of different diverse audiences in different scenarios. You've mentioned to me that you particularly enjoy teaching the master's students. Which audiences do you find that it's a little more challenging to get your messages across to them? You have so many different audiences. Oh, I think it's challenging to get this message across to everybody. As I said, I've been doing this for 30 years and my mum is still not sure exactly what I do. I prefer to try and create a model that afterwards we take from the results insights and not specific numbers. We take from it magnitudes. It's very hard to get across the message that we're not saying that the price should be exactly 2.014 or pi, but rather the magnitude is in the tens or the millions or whatever it is, and explaining that the politics are going to change the final result. We can see that in many fields. This is the case. If you took, for example, political science that came up 20 years ago with the argument that the Israelis should vote for the prime minister and separately the party, that ended up with very problematic results such that after two elections, this was cancelled. It's because the conclusions from the political sciences were watered down and watered down until they actually created the new laws and the opposite impact to the one that the political scientists meant to happen. That can happen to everybody. Whenever Is you're that thinking, because the political scientists who had proposed what ended up being interpreted as that legislation were misunderstood and misinterpreted? Yes, in my opinion, yes. And um, you can see it in many places. 
I remember a very fun conference that we held at the Mount Scopus campus of Hebrew University in 2013 and managed to bring a whole lot of very famous people to a small conference on what's called data development analysis, which is the modeling approach that I've used for measuring performance. And we invited a whole lot of our regulators. And at the time, there was a lot of argument in the press about whether the government should set the price of cottage cheese or not. In other words, in this country, at least, there's a whole lot of basic products that the government price caps in order to ensure that everyone has access to food. And at the time, we invited someone from within the Ministry of Finance to come and talk about setting those prices. And he stood there and he said, well, I don't know how to. I don't know how to set those prices. I don't understand. We should have competition. We shouldn't have government setting prices. Where competition is available, where you have sufficient size markets, then I absolutely agree with him. We do not want governments or regulators sticking their noses in markets where it is not necessary. But where there is market failure, then we do need governments to step in. And we want to have an equal society and we do not want people sitting on the streets hungry. Goodness gracious me, no. So how can we do this? We can help the regulators set the prices, but only if they're willing to listen to a consultant, to an academic, to someone independent. In this country, they listen to the producer. And the result is a very expensive lifestyle in this country. And so methods like the one I just described, that that I, I am one member of the academic world that is connected to this story. We do have ways of what I would call evidence-based regulation should bring some objectivity to the story and allow governments to step in if and only if there were market failures. So is this a core skill set when you think about training the next generation of researchers? While you're giving them the basic skills and the math and the science, Do you feel like you're also baking into the very curriculum the importance and the ability to be able to collaborate with industry and have an impact on real world problems by effectively communicating their findings and their studies in a way that's accessible to someone who is a layperson in the field? Is that part of something that you're teaching your students? I think that the curricula, certainly at business schools and specifically in my field, have changed a lot over the last three decades. I think that the power of the computer has allowed us to teach at a higher level than we were ever able to do before. So as a student myself, I had to really, really break my teeth a lot on the technical detail of programming, for example, which today is much more available. Consequently, we are able to better balance teaching the underlying tools and we are able to get to teaching the applications. We have a wonderful competition that we've participated in for the past few years that's been organized by Informs, which is the Operational Research Management Science Organization, umbrella organization. And they've brought in companies like Bayer Pharmaceuticals Company or GM for automated vehicles to come and ask students questions that once upon a time we could only dream about dealing with. Because It's a lot of data that they were handed that they would have great difficulties doing beforehand. This competition is open globally. 
think the last one, there were 300 groups from really every single one of the continents, which is exciting. Again, the internet, the computers have allowed us to do this. And we did not touch the data. The students handled it all themselves. We talked only about the ideas, the modeling approaches that we'd already taught them and how they could be applied. And we were there just to hold their hands and to watch them do it themselves and watch them grow. It is an amazing process to see. Obviously, at the PhD level, we can go into much greater depth, but then also it's much more specific and a very specific model, and it has to be done individually. But uh, yes, these people then feed both academia and the real world. 38% of employees in startups today, they have PhDs. We have changed as a society. We have become a more technical society. People need this education. And what's wonderful is that they're able to use it today in a way that 30 years ago was much more limited. Fantastic. So, Nicole, I want to be super respectful of your time. Maybe just leave us with one favorite tip that you've ever received or that you pass on regarding the importance of clarity of communication in your field, in research, in academics, in business. What should people keep in mind? if they want to be effective with their audiences in terms of getting their message across to them? I find that sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees. And this is something that we all have difficulties with. Yes, stories are fun and they add color to podcasts. You also need to learn how to separate and see the big picture and stick to that story and don't allow all the noise around to mess it up. Some people are very good at doing that. And, and that's a talent that's worthwhile curating. Beautiful. So find the through line and stick with that. Wonderful. Nicole, thank you so much. Thanks for your leadership. I certainly, as a fellow Jerusalemite and actually as an alumni of Hebrew University, not your faculty, but I'm from that university as well. We'll forgive you this time. <laughs> I told you I need to overcome my fear of math to be able to come study with you. I wish I could. <laughs> I can honestly say that it's been a pleasure to work with Daphna over the past three years with the students that I just mentioned in the competition. And I've learned so much from you about how to create a message. And I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Your vote of confidence means a ton to me and your students are amazing and I love working with them. Thank you. So looking forward to a new school year that will hopefully be healthy and God willing in person. And thank you so much, Nicole. Bye, Daphna. Thanks for being here with us on Let's Clarify It. I hope you found it helpful. If there are specific topics you'd love to hear covered or you'd like help clarifying your own message, I'd be delighted to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to me on letsclarify.it. In the meantime, be sure to take good care and clarify your messages to amplify your impact. <laughs>